coming up on Life as a Festival. Even more important than the sort of minutiae of testing, because that's really just about following the instructions, is just constantly reminding yourself and remembering that the risk analysis of taking drugs has changed, right? Taking a bump from a stranger on a dance floor, grabbing a gram from a friend who you know, those things have become far more dangerous because of the entrance of fentanyl into non-opioid markets. And so, like, just treat the freaking fentanyl test strips like a condom and just use them every single time that you have not already used them. The sort of easiest thing to do is to buy drugs in slightly larger amounts and just test them and have them in that. There's legal risks that come with that. Like, definitely don't get caught buying larger amounts. But from a testing standpoint, that's the easiest solution. If I don't personally run a test on something, I'm not consuming it right now. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Today on the show, I'm offering my first ever podcast repost. Today is National Fentanyl Awareness Day, and I consider this topic to be the most urgent consideration facing our community of cognitive liberty. I use drugs. I use psychedelics. I explore my consciousness, and many of the people I love do the same. And the issue of fentanyl adulteration, the 100,000 deaths that have been categorized as overdose in, I believe, 2020, is an indication that this is affecting all of us. I certainly have friends who have died from fentanyl adulteration. And so today I am offering on the podcast a repost of the episode I did with Mitchell Gomez. That podcast was quite a bit longer, and we talked about DanceSafe. Mitchell is executive director of DanceSafe. We covered a couple of topics, and then we ended the conversation with what to do about fentanyl. So I've truncated that episode, and this is entirely about what to do. What is our understanding of why we're seeing fentanyl in all sorts of drugs, why we must test all of our drugs, how do we test them, why we should carry Narcan, how to use it. Essentially, this is a full PSA about fentanyl. And if you are someone like me who likes to use drugs that are unfortunately suffering from a foolish prohibition, then it's important for you to know this information, which is why I'm sharing it again today. So without further ado, here is Mitchell Gomez. Just out the gate, if there is one thing that you think everyone needs to know about drug use, harm reduction in terms of drug use, if you could change the mainstream perspective, the mainstream language, the mainstream understanding of the use of recreational substances, what would the number one change be that you would make in terms of people's perception? Yeah, I mean, I think this actually applies both to what you called recreational substances and also all substances in general, which is that most of the problems that we ascribe to drug use are actually problems that are either created or exacerbated by drug prohibition. 
So these are not problems that are intrinsic to the molecules for the vast majority of users. Even with the drugs that like in our sort of Western culture are viewed as extremely dangerous, extremely problematic, things like heroin and crack, most of the users of those substances don't meet the DSM criteria for problematic substance use disorder. So like even most heroin users are by sort of the definitions that we use in popular language are recreational users. You just don't see them. Like the people that you see are the people who are having problems. And so there's this sort of skewed perception of what the average user looks like. And so, yeah, this idea that, oh, there are certain drugs that are so dangerous, like they need to be outlawed literally is never true. Like making things illegal only ever makes them more dangerous. It only ever makes the use of them more dangerous, both for the individual user and for society. And so then using the harms created by prohibition as a reason to continue prohibition is sort of the main rhetorical trick of the prohibitionists, right? They say, oh, like these drugs are so dangerous. We need to have them be illegal. We need this money. We need to lock people up. We need to force people into treatment. When most of the harms you're looking at are harms created because the drugs are illegal. There's a reason that DanSafe in the early years focused so heavily on MDMA. You know, MDMA, when it was being sold as a legal substance, basically never cause problems. It's intrinsically a, a relatively safe substance. And then as soon as it was outlawed, we started seeing the first wave of press pills that were things other than MDMA. Um, and so that's sort of how DanceSafe got started is by dealing with this sort of first wave adulteration within MDMA markets. But you do, you see that dynamic in every market for every drug where making it illegal just intrinsically makes it more dangerous. And it's an inevitable outcome of prohibition. I love this perspective. I love that we're starting here. And so with that beautiful preamble from you, Mitchell, welcome to Life is a Festival. You are the executive director of DanceSafe, an organization that I've been aware of and admired for a long time that is helping people have experiences in a safe way, i.e. harm reduction. And so Let's just jump into harm reduction right out the gate because I think that it's a great term for people to really understand what it means. And so in your own words, what is harm reduction? Yeah. So I'll start off by saying what I think harm reduction is and then why I think the term is problematic because I do actually think the conversation's ready to change. Oh, so, nice. I love uh, that. My sort of 10,000-foot view of harm reduction is that harm reduction is just a movement that fundamentally believes people have the right to use whatever substances they would like to and that as a society, we should make that use as safe as possible. We do this in a lot of different aspects of our society, right? Driving is this very intrinsically dangerous activity. And so we have speed limits, we have seat belts, you know, we have all of these sort of harm reduction mitigations that we engage in to make driving safer. It doesn't make driving safe. Certainly, it's has been a leading cause of death in this country for going on 50 years, I think. It's been floating around number three or four in terms of accidental deaths since cars really became the norm for mass transit. And so this idea that like harm reduction eliminates the harms is just not true. What we're trying to do is mitigate the harms. That being said, I think even the term itself is a little problematic in the sense that it implies that all use is harmful. Right? So there's this sort of built-in assumption that drug use is harmful, so we're trying to mitigate those harms. And for most users of most drugs, there really aren't that many harms. The, most users don't really have what I would call problems because of their drug use. Certainly not problems that aren't directly created by prohibition. And so we're really doing policy harm reduction, not drug harm reduction. 
So one of the terms that I think has really started to come into the lexicon and that I think is really important is the idea of benefit maximization. It's not just about mitigating the harms of these substances. It's about actively creating a culture where people gain the most that they can from their substance use because there are benefits to be gained. And I think that is an important part of the conversation that uh, we are finally in this country, I think, beginning to be ready for. You know, I think it's really important to remember that this country was founded in large part by actual Puritans, not theoretical Puritans, like actual Puritans, people whose core philosophy was that those things that feel good should hurt you. And we have not escaped that intellectual baggage of the early years. And so, yeah, I think we're finally entering an age where we can start having this conversation about benefit maximization it's not something I put on like grant applications to big funders yet, but it's something that we can, I think, start talking about. I love that. Yeah. The T fairy was on this show and she used the term benefit enhancement. Oh yeah. And, and I think that that goes hand in hand with being out of the closet as a psychedelic user or a substance user is to say that I'm using these by choice and I would like my benefits enhanced and I would like to do so in a way that is responsible both to myself and to my community. And so I am aware of certain things that I need to be responsible for. For example, these days, all of my community, we're all testing drugs. Whereas five, 10 years ago, we weren't doing that. And that's a way that we are being responsible to each other and to ourselves as we continue our cognitive liberty, which I believe wholeheartedly in. I think that cognitive liberty has enormously enhanced my life and the lives of those around me. So I, I love this framing and I feel like the way that things are framed has so much of an impact on how they're viewed and how things are stigmatized and actually how we're able to support people who have gotten harmed in some way in relation to using substances. So for example, 10, 20 years ago, everything was referred to as an overdose. Any kind of drug complication was called an overdose, which implied that the user of the drug had made a mistake and had taken too much and that they were then going to die because they'd taken too much. And it's sort of like, oh, they overdosed. How tragic that they did that to themselves. And so I think this, the reframing of overdose, especially during this epidemic of fentanyl adulteration, is extraordinarily important. So what should we be saying instead of overdose? Yeah, part of the problem is that from a purely medical standpoint, that is actually accurate, right? So from a medical standpoint, an overdose just means that enough of a drug entered your system that it overwhelmed your sort of biological homeostasis to a point that caused death. Right? And so from a purely medical standpoint, that is an accurate terminology for any drug death where a person consumed a drug and, and then it overwhelmed their body's ability to metabolize it and killed them. But obviously with fentanyl entering so many non-opioid substances, these are not people who are trying to take fentanyl, taking too much fentanyl and dying, right? We have people who are doing a bump of cocaine and that bump happens to have two to three milligrams of fentanyl in it and it kills that person. That is only an overdose in the sort of most technical medical sense. Really what we're talking about are prohibition-created drug adulteration deaths, right? So these are drug adulteration deaths that are happening explicitly because we don't have regulated marketplaces and are the exact parallel to the tens of thousands of deaths and hospitalizations that happened in this country in the 1930s because of black market alcohols or unregulated market alcohols. I guess people are trying to, trying to move away from that language. Basically, 
people would be diverting industrial methanol. The government and manufacturers were intentionally poisoning these industrial methanols so that they could not be diverted into unregulated alcohol drinking markets. They were being diverted anyway. People were drinking them. They were going blind. They were dying. This was like a major public health crisis in the 1930s in this country. And it's not just a parallel to fentanyl deaths. It's literally the exact same thing, right? We are talking about drug deaths that are occurring because we are not selling drugs through regulated marketplaces. The problem is it's a little cumbersome, right? The idea, like prohibition-driven drug adulteration deaths does not roll off the tongue like overdose. And so I think adulteration deaths is really a far more accurate terminology. But part of the problem is that we don't really have a good way of tracing these. We don't have a really good way of understanding them from a behavioral, public health, epidemiological standpoint because so often the person who died was the only person using those drugs, right? So if you find a person who has cocaine and fentanyl in their system and they are, you know, we're talking about a decedent, we're talking about a, a corpse that is being given an autopsy, it's really hard to know if that was cocaine adulterated with fentanyl, if the person was intentionally speedballing by taking both cocaine and heroin at the same time and the heroin had fentanyl in it. The person may have taken a fake Xanax that was fentanyl, right, and has now dissolved in their stomach. And so there's not really a good way to, even from just a purely biological standpoint, figure that out. And certainly in terms of how data is recorded and published within the, the coroner communities, it's really quite useless. So like just to give one sort of particularly egregious example, all MDMA incidents where a person had MDMA in their body when they died are recorded under stimulant deaths in the data. And that's as granular as the data gets. And so we have cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA are all classed into one column. That data does not exist at any more granular level. And so we don't have any way of knowing how many people in this country are dying with MDMA in their system or what the cause of death is for those MDMA deaths. And so we end up with these really frustrating situations where the data is almost... I, I don't even want to say almost. I believe that the data is intentionally framed in a way that allows for better pushing of prohibitionist narratives. Um, this is not about public health. It's about creating data that supports the drug war. Um, that sort of Marshall McLuhan would have a lot to say about this, but I, uh, I am no Marshall McLuhan. But this idea of the media is the message and that you cannot look at data as this like independent thing that exists out there because the way that we record data, the way that we tabulate data, the way that we process data is political. These are political decisions that are being made. And so, yeah, it's, we don't really know how many people are dying from fentanyl adulteration compared to people who were actively seeking out opiates. And so it's really hard to figure out the scale of the problem, how to address the problem, like what are the best mitigation procedures for this issue when the data itself is being politically manipulated right at the very beginning. We're talking about as the data is being collected and tabulated, it is built-in manipulation for supporting drug prohibition. They just want to be able to say, look how many people died from these drugs. That's the sort of extent of what they want from the data. Well, you know, those questions that you've just brought up that we don't have the data to answer are indeed the exact questions I'm hoping we can wrestle with today on the show. So hopefully we can get some of an understanding, and particularly for those listening to the podcast who use substances that may have fentanyl adulteration. There's a lot of fear there. So maybe we can start with why this is happening. Now, I know that your perspective on this is that it is a direct result of prohibition, which I absolutely agree with, but why now? And why has fentanyl kind of jumped from opioids to just 
drugs generally? Yeah, so the, I think those are two different questions. Uh, the why now is a confluence of a couple different factors. One of the big ones is the increased border security under the Trump administration. There was a book written many years ago, I think even in the 1970s, but basically the term that was coined is the iron law of prohibition. And the iron law of prohibition is that the harder you enforce a drug law, the more potent those drugs become. Uh, so we saw this under alcohol prohibition. It was almost impossible to get beer and wine in this country under alcohol prohibition. It was whiskey, gin, rum, because the harder it became to smuggle alcohol, the thing that becomes most important is how many doses you can fit within a smuggled cubic meter, right? That becomes the sort of main determining factor of what you are going to smuggle as enforcement increases. And so as the Trump administration built the border wall, as they increased funding for border security, there were many, many people out there who were ringing the alarm bells very early saying, as you make it more difficult to smuggle heroin, there are already existing potent opioid analogs. We didn't know which one it was going to be, right? Like fentanyl is just one of many hundreds of different opioid analogs. So people were already saying you are directly encouraging a switch from heroin smuggling to the smuggling of opioid analogs by increasing border security. So that's one of the things that happened. Another thing that has been happening is the development of new tools within legal chemistry to better optimize drug synthesis. And those tools are then patented. Patents are really, really good for controlling your technology within a legal market, and they are also literally instructions on how to do the exact same thing in an extra-legal market, right? So that's what a patent is, is a detailed description of how you do the thing. And if a person is already existing outside of the law, then those detailed instructions are just instructions, not an impediment towards the implementation of whatever that thing is. So there have been AI improvements in the last couple of years where people have developed artificial intelligence that can better figure out drug synthesis, uh, the sort of general level of knowledge of organic chemistry within a lot of different countries where the law is a little less strictly enforced has been increasing for decades. So we now have thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of PhD chemists who are living in countries where the police are far more bribable than they are in the United States. Everywhere from Central and South America to Asia to former breakaway Soviet republics, um, there are just a lot of chemists living in places where you can get away with a lot of things for not much money, particularly when you're talking about a global drug market worth trillions of dollars, right? A lot of money flows into these unregulated markets. And if you're living in a country where a police officer makes $600,000 or $1,000 a year and you're making $600,000 a year, it's really easy to deal with law enforcement from just like a financial perspective and just pay them to ignore you. We have also seen an increase in digital privacy technologies, right? So everything from payment processing through cryptocurrency to the dark web to anonymous remailers. There's just a lot of different ways to move information and money around the planet now. Uh, and so when you have a combination of all of these factors of USPS and UPS and FedEx are able to physically examine maybe 0.5% of the packages they handle, realistically, it's probably far less than that. They don't publish these numbers, but like, it's a fraction of a percent combined with chemists all over the world in countries where they can operate extra legally to the ability to 
send money in ways that are virtually untraceable to an increase in border security, you really have a perfect storm for encouraging the development and smuggling of new opioid analogs as we've made it harder and harder for heroin to move throughout the world. It is a little unusual that it has hit the United States so much harder than any other country, but only because the United States had a larger opioid-using population and stronger border patrol. And so the combination of those factors, I think, is why it hit the U.S. so much harder than it has so far hit the rest of the world. So that's why it entered the opioid markets, right? That's part one of the equation, is why did fentanyl, car fentanyl, all of these things um, become so prevalent, in terms of why fentanyl has entered non-opioid markets, I don't think there is a single answer, and I also don't think that this is really a knowable thing. So what we have is a lot of supposition, a lot of hypotheses, there's a lot of theories that range from what I would call like exceedingly unlikely, and in the exceedingly unlikely category, I would put things like this is an intentional decision by the U.S. drug war apparatus to change the dynamic understanding of drug use dangers, right? So we do have a history in this country of the DEA poisoning the drug supply. They used to spray Paraquat on coca fields. They would take out full-page ads in the New York Times bragging that they had just poisoned a bunch of cocaine. This is in the 70s. So there is a history of that sort of behavior from the, the DEA. Openly, this is not conspiratorial, they would brag about it. It seems really unlikely to me that that's what's happening, but I don't entirely rule out individual philosophical prohibitionists poisoning the drug supply. I, I, I think that is within the general realm of possibility. I don't think it's a structured policy of the federal government to poison cocaine with fentanyl. There's a lot of people who give a lot of uh, weight to the idea that this is rival drug smuggling organizations poisoning each other's drug supply as a way of sowing distrust within their rival's supply, right? So this one distribution network poisons this supply over here, and then they retaliate and they go back. I would still leave that sort of more in the unlikely realm. But again, we don't have any way of judging what is really happening. I certainly think that a lot of these deaths that are happening are absolutely intentional homicides. You know, if you wanted to kill somebody in a way that is not really going to be investigated as a homicide, historically, that was almost impossible. And now it's just really fucking easy, right? Like you just poison their, their drugs and like realistically law enforcement is not going to have the time, energy, resources, or desire to investigate that in a way that is really meaningful. You know, a hundred thousand deaths a year is not it's a lot of different things. It's individual tragedies for those 100,000 people. It's a massive public health crisis. But the other thing that it is a just total overwhelming of our uh, sort of enforcement apparatuses for dealing with investigatory situations. We just don't have the ability or bandwidth to investigate these deaths. I still think that a large number of these are just accidents. You know, we're talking about synthetic opiates that can kill you at one or two milligrams, right? So one five hundredth of a gram bag. So if in between packaging your opiates and your cocaine, if you don't wipe down every surface, every scale, every scoop, every baggie, every nook and cranny on that table really, really well, I just think it's really easy for a lot of these to be accidental cross-contamination. And I think that's a really common thing that happens. People always say like, oh, like I know my network. And it's like, 
No, like at a high enough level, smuggling is a profession. They don't care what they're carrying. And plenty of the dudes who smuggle heroin also smuggle ketamine and cocaine. Like it's just a professional smuggling organizations exist out there that you can just pay them to get a box across the border and they don't care what's in the box. And most of the ketamine now is not diverted from medical or veterinary supply. Most of it is unregulated synthesized ketamine coming out of Asia smuggled into this country the exact same way that all other drugs are smuggled into this country. And so the ketamine market is just flooded with this like straight up produced in the same lab smuggled by the same professional smuggling networks. Like it's the same thing that's happening with any other drug. And so like this idea that, oh, ketamine could never be alter accidentally contaminated. It is nonsense to me. Like it's just not true. And we're also seeing a lot of things that are not ketamine being sold as ketamine. So we know that the ketamine markets are suffering from the same sort of adulteration, misrepresentation crisis that happens with all the other drug markets. We have definitely now seen samples that were sold as MDMA that had fentanyl. For a long time, I was really hesitant to say that publicly. A lot of it was sort of anecdotal, circumstantial evidence. Um, the fentanyl test strips do false positive on MDMA if you're at too high of a concentration. And so a lot of times people were like, oh, I tested my molly and it tested positive. It was like, did you have a good scale or a shitty scale when you were doing the testing? Because if you had a shitty scale, you might've just had too much MDMA in the sample and it false positive. But now we've had laboratory confirmed samples. We've had people who took what they thought was MDMA and passed away. We have now had enough direct evidence that I can say that it is for sure happening. Um, there was just one that showed up at a lab in British Columbia that was sold as MDMA that was mostly fentanyl. Most of the sample was fentanyl. So like way above a potentially lethal dose being sold as MDMA. It was probably a mixed up baggie. Somebody probably mixed up their baggie of what was being sold as down or as heroin with the baggie that they were selling as MDMA, they're both sort of tannish powders. They visually are not that different. And so like, yeah, somebody distributed this thing. They thought it was MDMA and it was mostly fentanyl. We've even seen car fentanyl, which is a more potent fentanyl analog laid on blotter paper. And again, I don't think that's anybody selling it as acid. I don't think that's what's happening. It's more expensive than LSD. But if somebody found a 10 strip of blotter on the ground, their first thought is not powerful synthetic opioid, right? Like that's not the first thing you think if you find some blotter lying on the ground. And one of the samples that was seized was laid on Albert Hoffman Bicycle Day blotter, which is available on eBay as art, right? The undipped blotter is on eBay. And so you can't just like look at a print and be like, oh, it's got a bicycle on it. It's definitely gonna be acid. That is not the world we live in anymore. And so, yeah, in terms of the sort of minutiae of how this is happening, I think that there are probably close to as many answers as there are fentanyl adulteration incidents. I think these are individual people making individual decisions. It's ending up in the supply for a lot of different reasons, all of which are only possible because drug distribution is unregulated. There is a reason that fentanyl is not showing up in craft beer. There's a reason that fentanyl is not showing up in weed at dispensaries. There's a reason that it's not showing up in cigarettes. There's a reason it's not showing up in aspirin, right? The reason it doesn't show up in those drugs, but it does show up in cocaine, methamphetamine, ketamine, is that those drugs are sold through regulated supply channels and the other drugs are not sold through regulated supply channels. 
And so it doesn't really matter ultimately what the sort of day-to-day reasons are that this is happening. Um, I mean, it matters from a, oh, I want to know why my friend passed away perspective. It matters certainly from a criminal justice perspective in figuring out how to treat these deaths. A lot of people want to treat these as drug-induced homicides. I think that's a terrible mistake. But really what matters is understanding that all of the possible problems have the same solution, which is the creation of regulated supply. And so as long as we know that, that all of the reasons it's happening can be ended tomorrow, I think we can at least have a baseline for conversation around what it means to end these deaths. You know, I did the math on this. I think it would take roughly 80 days to have fair trade organic cocaine for sale if we ended global drug prohibition today. So it would take us like two months and some change before we could create like a legal fair trade organic cocaine distribution network on this planet. This is not technological difficulties. These are political difficulties. We do need the fair trade drugs. (laughs) Yeah. And and honestly, like if you look at people who use coca in places where they can get coca leaf, right? The, the behavioral use is much more, is much less problematic. The compulsive redosing isn't really an issue. If we could just get coca leaf in this country legally, I think the vast majority of cocaine users would switch to using coca leaf. We could call it a plant medicine then as well. I mean, it's explicitly a, it's explicitly a plant medicine. Um, in fact, every time a plant medicine community has asked me to write a piece for them, I have always asked if I can do it on cocaine and not one has taken me up on this offer, right? Cocaine is a naturally occurring alkaloid within the coca plant. It is explicitly a plant medicine. It is not semi-synthetic. You don't have to do anything to the cocaine when you take it out of the coca to make it usable. You, you know, you and I could drug nerd out pretty hard on that. One of my f- favorite books I've ever read is called Cocaine and Unauthorized Biography. Oh yeah, and, that one's back uh, here somewhere as well. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, That's a great, good one. Great book, you know, talking about how the Incan Empire was like entirely built on these coca runners and there's Drugs are cool, man. That's the whole thing. They're cool. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, it's true. But I think it's important that we get to what we can do about this issue of adulterated fentanyl causing so many deaths. Yeah. Because um, there's a lot of fear, and rightly so, and we are waiting to end drug prohibition. Some of us, like yourself, are working very hard to do it. Most of us could be doing more. But until we get an end to prohibition, we need to know what we can do to keep people safe. And yeah. the two things here that I'd like to talk about is fentanyl testing, where we get it. I know we can get fentanyl testing strips through DanceSafe, but where we get it, how we test, and then also Narcan and how just bringing more awareness. I'd really love for our listeners to go away feeling like they're well-armed to continue to have the experiences that they want to have in safe ways within their communities and that no one's going to die. So... Let's talk, first of all, about fentanyl testing. We need to be testing our drugs. How do we do it? Where do we get the testing strips? Walk us through it. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say about the fentanyl testing strips is that we hear a lot of sort of misinformation around what they do, what they don't do, the sort of risks, the benefits. They are more difficult to use drug testing testing technology than a lot of people have used. They are sophisticated analytical testing equipment, and you really do need to read and follow the instructions or they won't work as they are supposed to. It's also really important to know what you're actually testing as opposed to just assuming, oh, this baggie said ketamine on it so I can follow the instructions for ketamine and I'll test them with the strips. And if they say there's no fentanyl, then that means there's no fentanyl. If your baggie of ketamine is not actually ketamine, there are 
risks there around you not getting an accurate result. And so reagent testing first so that you actually know what is in your bag as opposed to just assuming that, oh, this thing's had MDMA on it, so it's MDMA is really, really important. So first you need to know what you're actually testing. And then you need to really follow the instructions. And we're about to release a new set of instructions that we think are far more user-friendly. Um, we are expanding from a single fold to a six fold. So the instructions are much more comprehensive around like, this is how you would test blotter. This is how you would test MDMA. Here's how you reagent test MDMA. Here's how you reagent test ketamine. Here's how... So we really wanted to make it as foolproof as possible in terms of like A, B, these are the steps, follow the instructions and you'll get to where you need to go. Those are actually in sort of final review and edits right now and we should be printing those soon. The biggest problem is that the best option is testing all of your sample. You really want to dissolve the entire amount of drug you are consuming into water and test the water so that you can make sure that you are getting a full sample of what is in that bag. As I said, you know, two, maybe three milligrams of fentanyl is a potentially fatal dose for an, what is medically called an opioid naive user. This is a person who has no opioid tolerance. So for somebody who is opioid naive, has no opioid tolerance, if they take two milligrams of, of fentanyl, that may be enough to impact their breathing enough to kill them. So we are talking about a very small amount of powder. And if you're testing a 3.5 gram baggie of cocaine and you don't test the portion of the baggie that has the fentanyl in it, you are very likely to miss the fact that there's fentanyl there. We often call this the chocolate chip cookie effect. You know, if you think of a chocolate chip cookie the size of a dining room table, the fentanyl, that's a gram bag of cocaine and then one chocolate chip would be the fentanyl. So we're talking about a, a, a ratio that is very problematic. That being said, we have had good results really finely crushing the powder, mixing the powder in a baggie really well, and then testing 10 milligrams. We do get positive results doing that all the time. So if you're at an event, you are set on using those drugs tonight, there is a way that you can try to get information. It is not guaranteed. It is not as good as testing your whole sample. And so really this requires some planning. You have to decide, oh, I'm gonna be taking cocaine at this event, it's in two weeks. Um, I'm going to get my cocaine now. I'm going to test it at home. I'm going to dissolve the whole thing. I'm going to reconstitute it by drying it out. And then I'll have my cocaine that I tested. I recognize that is disruptive to the sort of way that a lot of people acquire and use their substances. A lot of people get their drugs at the event that they are at. They use them at that event and then they don't want to drive with them. And so obviously doing this whole dissolving process in a tent is difficult if not impossible. Some places are so freaking dry that you could almost certainly reconstitute it just by leaving a glass baking tray out. Like uh, a certain desert in Nevada, like things just evaporate <laughs> really well. And so there are probably places you could do it. Events in Florida, everything gets wet. So like you're definitely not doing this in a tent at an event in Florida because yeah, many years ago, I actually, way before I was involved in DanceSafe, just at a random party in the South, I had MDMA in my pocket that became like gooey because of the, the ambient humidity in the air. Like it was absorbing so much water that it became like a sort of taffy material. And I had to figure out how to chop it up with a razor and it was awful. I could, it was terrible. So yeah, it's really important that you follow the directions, that you know what you're testing, and that you do a little bit of planning so that you have to figure this out. 
But I really think the even more important than the sort of minutiae of testing, because that's really just about following the instructions, is just constantly reminding yourself and remembering that the risk analysis of taking drugs has changed, right? Taking a bump from a stranger on a dance floor, grabbing a gram from a friend who you know, like those things have become far more dangerous because of the entrance of fentanyl into non-opioid markets. And it's really easy to forget that, particularly when you're already on drugs, particularly when you're already on MDMA, which disinhibits your amygdala, lowers your fear response, makes you more trusting. Like this is a drug that biologically impacts your ability to feel concern and fear. That's one of the reasons people like it. That's one of the reasons it's so good for PTSD therapy. It's one of the reasons that people sometimes make decisions on MDMA that they later really regret. And so knowing that as you go into the night, I cannot take cocaine from strangers. Like I can't do this tonight. Even if it's a stranger that like, even if I feel safe in the moment, like if you're on MDMA, you have biochemically created the feeling of safe. So like, that's great. I know you feel safe. That's what the drug does. Like it's working. Congratulations. Like it's not a rational analysis of the situation. And so just having that sort of constant awareness both among yourself and also spreading it to your friends. I don't want people to feel paranoid about their friends, but the reality is like drug markets have changed and it is not about trusting your guy. I know you trust your guy. Like your guy is not the one doing this. This is happening way up the chain. We see waves of deaths that go through cities. It's your guy's 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 guy. And like, I don't care how cool your guy is, five up the chain, there is almost certainly somebody that like you would not personally want to hang out with. And I'm not knocking those people. I actually have a lot of respect for people who are willing to risk their lives to make the thing happen because if they don't do that, none of us can get the drugs. Like I, I respect those people, but there are real adulteration waves that are happening and we don't really know why. And so just having that awareness and spreading that awareness and really making sure that you just like, like, I'm not saying don't trust you. It's, it's that whole trust but verify. I'm not saying don't trust your person, but I am saying to personally test your substances, right? Like, in the same way that, like, people often want to see physical copies of STI results from a new potential sexual partner before they stop using condoms. Like, it's not about not trusting this person that you're going to have sex with. If they tell you that their STI results were one thing, it's almost certainly fine. But, like, a lot of people still want to see them. It's just a sort of comfort safety thing to like verify that this what they are saying is true and so like just treat the freaking fentanyl test strips like a condom and just use them every single time that you have not already used them the sort of easiest thing to do is to buy drugs in slightly larger amounts and just test them and have them in that there's legal risks that come with that like definitely don't get caught buying larger amounts but from a testing standpoint that's the easiest solution and yeah, we hear about drug sellers showing people negative test results on fentanyl test strips, right? Like showing them photographs of that. If this is a person that you really trust, like maybe that's enough for you. It wouldn't be enough for me at this point, like from anyone. Like it doesn't matter how well I know these, you know, there, there are people that I've been partying with consistently for 22 years. And like, that would not be enough for me right now. Like if I don't personally run a test on something, I'm not consuming it right now. And, and the ideal way to run the test is you're saying you dissolve the entire sample in water, you use a fentanyl testing strip, and first you do a reagent test to figure out if yep. it is what you think it is. Then you dissolve it, then you use a fentanyl strip, and then you can be reasonably 
sure that you're safe using that and that it's not adulterated with fentanyl or another yeah, opioid so you, analog? Yeah, so if you follow our instructions on the dilution for a given substance, right? So like methamphetamine has to be diluted at a different ratio than ketamine. So if you reagent test so you know what you're doing, you do that – all of the fentanyl analogs that the strips detect, and there's a list of them on our website, it's almost all of the ones that we have seen in the market. It's certainly all of the common ones that we have seen in the market. There is no way for there to be a problematic amount of those substances if you follow our instructions. There are no concerns around false negatives. There are things that cause false positives. So like... Uh, weirdly, if somebody had ground up Benadryl and put it into your sample, it will test positive on the fentanyl test strips. Benadryl false positives the strips at a really high rate. And we have this problem with particularly, I believe it's either Philadelphia or Chicago. Benadryl is a really common cut in heroin. And so because a lot of Benadryl ends up in heroin there, the test strips are less useful for testing heroin to see if it has fentanyl because they almost always test positive because of how common it is to use Benadryl as a cut. And so there is that risk. But false positives are actually really okay in the harm reduction perspective. So if your baggie test positive and it was a false positive, what does that mean? It means maybe you didn't use it. Maybe you used less. Maybe you made sure you had a friend there with Narcan. The false positives are not as problematic. False negatives would be unacceptable. If there was something that people could add to a baggie that made the strips not work, that would make the strips useless. But so far, we have been unable to find anything that does that. And we have tried. We have actively tried to fuck with the test strips. And so far, we have not been able to find any way that that's happening. And so, yeah, I'm not saying that that eventually might not become an issue. Um, we are also starting to see things enter the market that are not opiates. So we're seeing benzodiazepine analogs enter some of the opioid market. So people are selling benzo analogs as heroin. And so the strips don't detect those, right? The strips don't are not designed to detect benzo analogs. So we're actively working on helping to develop new strips that will be broad-spectrum benzo strips so you can test a sample and see if it has a benzo. It won't be useful for being like, oh, I want to see if the Xanax is actually Xanax. That's not the purpose. That's not what they're being designed for. It's here's a baggie that is supposed to be cocaine. I want to make sure there are no benzos in this baggie. We have not seen it enter non-opioid markets yet, but because how fentanyl started and spread, we're obviously just trying to sort of research-wise, we're trying to stay ahead of that potentially happening. I'm hopeful it won't happen. It's less common. It's still pretty unusual to see. So maybe we will not have that happen. But, you know, we might because if you create really harsh criminal penalties for people selling fentanyl, they switch to car fentanyl. And then if you create really harsh penalties for people selling car fentanyl, they switch to other things. And there's just a lot of things out there. And so if we continue to criminalize fentanyl analogs, eventually people will switch to benzo analogs. They'll switch to – I mean there's – like literally tens of thousands of potential drugs out there. We still have just barely started working with salvinorin analogs. So I anticipate there being orally administrable salvinorin analogs and smokable salvinorin analogs and snortable salvinorin analogs. And some of them may be dissociative. Some of them may be psychedelic. Some of them may be depressants. Like salvia does a lot of different weird things. And so some of the analogs might tease apart some of those different things. If we could find one that just did time lock, like just did the massive time expansion, I think that one would be super popular. It's a really interesting experience when salvia does that. And if we had a drug that consistently just did the thing where you're in salvia space for 100,000 years, like, I think that would be a, a drug that people would be interested in. 
but yeah, staying ahead of this problem is, is sort of a lot of what we do. But yeah, to your question, if you follow the instructions, you can be reasonably certain that there is none of the listed fentanyl analogs in that substance. Okay, so let's talk about Narcan. Where do we get it? How do we use it? How do we know that we need to use it? Can you give us just the basic 30,000 view yeah, of yeah. using Narcan and how we can bring this into events so that we can take better care of people? Yeah. Yeah, I think the very first thing to say is that for a long time, there has been the presumption that if you were not either personally using opiates or hanging out with people using opiates, you didn't need Narcan. That entire assumption is now completely thrown out the window. If you know anybody who uses any drug that they didn't purchase at a pharmacy with a legal script, like full stop, any powder that you snort, swallow, inject, stick up your ass, like if you are taking unregulated substances, you should have Narcan and you should know how to use it. The risk of accidental exposure is real. It happens really commonly. And so like, that's the first thing is don't assume that just because you're not taking opiates that you don't need Narcan. You do. If you are around anyone using any of these substances, how you get it is unfortunately one of those examples of the United States not actually being a country. We are 50 countries in a trench coat, right? Like quite literally every state has its own laws. Sometimes those laws vary really widely. There is a reason that people who are lawyers in Louisiana cannot practice law in any other state because the laws in Louisiana came from the Napoleonic Code. They have an entirely different basis. It's a different country. The laws in Texas and the laws in New York often have very little in common. And so really what you need to do is if people do a Google search for find free Narcan in my state, I forget the exact website. There's two main websites now where it'll have a little link you can click on for your area and you can figure it out. And in some states, it is really difficult and really onerous and they make it really hard intentionally because there are states that still have this idea that like, if you're using opiates, you deserve what happens. We have elected sheriffs who have put out press releases saying, I am not going to allow my officers to carry Narcan. There are cops in America who have said this publicly. These are top level law enforcement for their county. These are sheriffs who've said, like, if you do opiates in my county, we're going to let you die. They don't quite phrase it like that. But saying we're not allowing deputies to carry Narcan is pretty clearly saying that. And then there are other states where it is tremendously easy to get. Uh, so... For instance, in Colorado, I live in Denver, and so that's just the state that I know best. I've actually done direct lobbying here on, on issues that I cared about. I've gotten really familiar with reading Colorado law. In Colorado, Narcan requires a prescription. Changing that in the law was going to be really difficult. It sort of tied in with a lot of other things. So what Colorado did is create an open prescription. Anyone physically standing in the state of Colorado is presumed to have a, a prescription for Narcan. So you can go to any pharmacy in the state of Colorado, say, I would like some Narcan, and you already have a prescription for it. You are in the state of Colorado. It doesn't matter if you're a Colorado resident. It doesn't matter how old you are. By virtue of being physically in the state, you have a prescription to, to purchase and carry Narcan in the state of Colorado. And then there are states that want you to go to your doctor and explain why you need it and get a prescription. And so if you have health insurance, there are people who have lost their health insurance because they went and got a Narcan script for their friends. There are also people who will illegally mail it to all 50 states as a direct nonviolent civil disobedient action. So if you Google Narcan by mail, lots of people come up who will send it to any state. It is not legal. I am not aware of anyone being arrested for doing it. 
So there are always ways to get it, but just be aware that like you may be breaking the law by carrying Narcan in some states without a prescription. You may be actively engaging in civil disobedience by doing this. And so I, I, I don't recommend people always follow the law, but I do recommend people always know when they're breaking the law and how to break it strategically and like how to think about the law that way. And so, yeah, it's just one of those things where, like, I can't give you one answer because we're not one country. We have a really fragmented, distorted 50-state situation right now. So so the, the other two questions here are just broadly, how does one use it? And how do you identify the symptoms of an overdose or, I'm sorry, you would still say overdose, yes? Yeah. So this is part of the problem is that like overdose is medically correct terminology, right? A person who has taken so much fentanyl that they have overwhelmed their breathing system is suffering from a medical overdose even if they did not intend to consume fentanyl. It's just not a useful framing for public policy. It's, It's a perfectly accurate medical term. It's just, I just dislike it. But a person who's suffering from an opioid incident is the way to phrase or, or it. Fentanyl poisoning, perhaps? Fentanyl poisoning, I think, is fair for a lot of these cases. It does create a frame that fentanyl is a poison, and there are people who intentionally take fentanyl. And so I don't want to, like, make it sound like those people are intentionally poisoning themselves, because for them, it's not a poison. For them, it's the drug they were seeking out. I actually personally know somebody who, in the early days of fentanyl, when you could order it legally legally. Uh, It wasn't banned in China. So there was a time period when you could just order it from Chinese supply companies. So I know somebody who had been a like 19 year daily heroin user, had never been able to get the access to the financial resources needed to go through treatment. Like they wanted to stop, but they did not have the resources to do it. And in those early years, for what they were spending every week on heroin, they were able to buy what they thought would be a 18-month supply of fentanyl, pure powdered fentanyl from China, came in USPS in an envelope, sealed in glass but in an envelope from China, and created 18 months of titrated lower doses spreading out over the full 18 months. So they literally said, like, this is month one. I'm going to make it this dose each day. Here's month two. I'll reduce the dose. Month three, I'll reduce the dose. And successfully got off of opiates using fentanyl. Like, I know this person. I know that they did this. And so, like, even drugs like this, I don't want to make it sound like they are just poisons or should be banned. Like, they have applications that are valid and people who have gained benefit from their fentanyl use. Now, that being said, for most people you're going to be seeing at a nightclub falling on the ground, that is probably not what's happening. The thing you're really looking for is the sort of classic signs of opioid use, right? So a person is non-responsive, particularly to pain. You know, if you do the knuckle rub on someone's sternum and they're not reacting, like that is a thing that even in like a full K-hole, if you hardly rasp your knuckles across a person's sternum, they will smack your hands away unless they're basically in a coma. Like it's one of the ways they test if a patient is in a coma or just sedated is doing that. And on a true opioid, quote unquote, over you can do that real hard on a person's chest and they're just like non-responsive. If you do that, it's a bad sign. Let me start, actually, let me back up just a little bit. 
try to find somebody in your state who does official Narcan trainings. I am not like a licensed Narcan trainer. I'm giving you my information I've gotten from doing trainings as an attendee, as attending trainings. This is sort of leaving my field of expertise. And so you should really try to find an expert in this field, get trained on how to use Narcan, how to recognize an opioid incident. There's actually some good YouTube videos as well that are done by experts. And I recommend that you listen to those. This is not comprehensive. This is me giving you the 30,000 foot overview. The first thing that most opioids, including fentanyl, do is start to impact breathing. So a person's heart rate, it'll be slowed, but still beating. These are not people who require chest compressions generally. These are people who have stopped breathing. That is how this substance kills. It is also part of why... At the safe use facilities that exist in Canada and exist in, you know, countries like Portugal and Switzerland and Spain and places that have a medical facility where people who are intentionally using opiates can go and use their opiates, nobody has ever died at one of these facilities. Because if there's a person there to rescue, breathe, and administer Narcan, opioids are virtually never fatal. People are dying because they're either alone or they're around people who don't know how to deal with opioid incidents. And so these are, again, not intrinsic to the drugs. These are part of the sort of culture of use. But really, administering Narcan is basically just spraying it up a person's nose and then rescue breathing for them until emergency helper plot shows up. One of the biggest things to know about fentanyl, though, and this is a thing that has really changed the sort of Narcan naloxone conversation, is that fentanyl has a longer time of action than Narcan. So if you give a person Narcan who had taken enough fentanyl that it would have killed them, and they get up and like walk away, there is a possibility that the Narcan will wear off before the fentanyl does, and they will again stop breathing when the Narcan wears off. And so if somebody has been exposed to fentanyl and you give them Narcan, you really are just holding them over until you can get them to medical care. So like you really do need to get this person into an ambulance, into a hospital, into the medical tent at the festival. You need to get them into a place where if that happens, it's not universal, but it does happen. And so you want to make sure that if that happens in half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever the timeline is, that that person is not now back in their tent alone, because if they are, they're going to die. And so it's a stopgap while you address the sort of reality that this person has a high enough level of some opiate in their system that they stopped breathing. And that might happen again, not because they use more, but because the thing that was blocking the opioid is now wearing off and they still have that level of opioid in their system. It's a really fucked up dynamic. It's sort of new. I've only just started really hearing people talk about this openly that like, it's not enough now to just like get a person breathing again and they're okay. But this might've been known by the opioid folks for a while. Like I said, we're, we're outside of my area of, of expertise now. I, I just, yeah, I'm, I really, I'm, I'm interested in drugs I'm interested in, and I've just always personally found opiates to be tremendously uninteresting. Like, they're just not drugs that really do anything for me that I find enjoyable. Even when I've had them prescribed, like, medically, I was in Florida in the 2000s. I had a knee injury, so of course the doctors just, like, threw opiates at me, because that was what doctors did in Florida in the 2000s. And yeah, I took oxycodone for a little while because of this sort of bad knee injury, and then I stopped. And that was my experience with oxycodone is just like, 
taking it while I was hurting and then I stopped and I didn't experience any desire to seek out additional opiates. Like it was just, but I also had a really emotionally secure childhood. You know, the number one predictor of problematic opioid use is childhood trauma. It's people who are dealing with unresolved emotional childhood issues. And so like, I didn't have that. I had, my parents are still married happily. I, I grew up in a sort of, you know, relatively financially secure home. Like I just, I had a, a good childhood. And so, yeah, it's not a judgment thing. It's just a, an acknowledgement that the war against particularly problematic opiate users is quite literally a war on childhood trauma survivors. That's what the damn thing is because people who didn't have traumatic childhoods have a far lower statistical probability of developing problematic relationships with opiates. And like, that's really fucked up that like we as a society have declared war on childhood trauma survivors and call them things like junkies. And even as other drug users really tend to denigrate and ignore and talk shit about them. It's like really super not okay in the, in the grand scheme. So. I love that as an, as kind of an ending point, that need for compassion. And I've talked a lot on this show about psychedelic exceptionalism, the idea that our cool drugs are cool. And I love your framing around a war on childhood trauma survivors. When I went to Gabon to do Iboga, we spoke about addiction. I spoke with a Bwiti elder about addiction. And I was told that they don't really think of addiction the way that we do. Addiction is simply compensation for deep you know, psychic trauma, and that aboga goes to the root of that trauma. That's why it's so potent as a healing uh, modality. But I think that we absolutely must come from compassion, especially the groovy psychedelic people. Like, come on, guys. That's the whole thing. We're supposed to believe we're all one. If we are all one, then you, my dear friend, and the so-called junkie are one. So, you know, yeah. have a little compassion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've read Mapping the Source, t Fairies. A poem about 5-MeO-DMT. I've not. Yeah, probably my favorite piece of poetry written in the last hundred years. Like I say that quite unironically. It's an amazing piece of poem. But my favorite line in there is, we all know that we're one in some thin, nerdy way. We exchange lots of data. We roll in the hay. But this isn't just something that flaky folks say. An intensive convincing's just three tokes away. Oh, I love her. She's, I mean, um, amazing. Like, just an utterly yeah. amazing human being. How can people follow you, catch up with your work, social media, Dance Safe, that sort of thing? Yeah, following Dance Safe is the best way to see most of what I do. Um, there is a Mitchell Gomez page as well on Facebook. There's one on Instagram and Twitter as well, but really Facebook is my primary platform. If you don't mind the fact that it is uh, far more a leftist not liberal leftist rant site than it is a drug war specific. I'm also very interested in housing policy, general social justice stuff around racial equity. And so I post a lot of stuff that uh, tends to not sit well with some ravers is my polite phrasing. Um, but if you want to see me rant about how we also created homelessness through our housing policy, the same way that we, we created drug deaths through our drug policy, uh, yeah, that's a thing I'm... Like, God, I want to end the drug war so I can fix global homelessness. Like, I have the solutions to that one too, but I got to end the drug war first. So yeah, that's uh, that's the way to find me. But also, if you're interested in this stuff, get trained as a dance volunteer. We need more volunteers. The pandemic was really hard on our volunteer base, on our chapters. A lot of our volunteers are nurses, EMTs, medical 
people. So they've had a really rough uh, couple years. And so we've lost a lot of volunteers because of that. And, you know, people who lost their jobs and had to move. And so we're actively in a process of rebuilding our capacity to work events. And so if you're interested in learning how to do drug testing, learning how to teach consent, learning how to, you know, teach people about hearing protection, giving out hundreds of thousands of condoms, getting into shows, having people fucking love you. Like, it's awesome being a Dance Safe volunteer. It's so much fun. And yeah, our training is online. If you just search Dance Safe training, it'll come right up. And once you do it, you're fed into our volunteer system. And yeah, right now we're low, low on volunteers. If you want to get involved, it, we make it really easy. We get a lot of event requests and it's super fun. Like, I just, I hate that I don't get to do it more. I would do it every weekend if I could have the capacity, but... I, I spend a lot of my time trying to figure out how to pay for all of it. Mitchell, thank you so much for operating at such high capacity in the work that you do. We are so grateful. I am personally grateful for you coming on the show, and I know that we are going to keep a lot more people safe by those who have listened to this beautiful PSA. So yeah, thank you thank so you much. For, thank you for hosting this podcast. I don't listen to enough podcasts. I need to start listening to more podcasts. But yeah, if yours is high on the queue when I do have the sort of limited time to, to do it. Well, Mitchell, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming. Yeah, on. yeah. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor.